Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The FT. Hello and welcome to World Weekly. On the show this week, the diplomatic response to the crisis in Syria hangs in the balance as the debate moves to the UN and the Russians vow to block any foreign intervention. If the Assad regime feels completely isolated, and so far it has not felt completely isolated because Russia and to a certain extent also China have been on its side, then it could begin to consider uh, a political transition because its options going forward will be more limited. And Uttar Pradesh, India's biggest state, is going to the polls. What are the risks for the ruling Congress party and the Gandhi dynasty? Rahul Gandhi, the scion of the uh, Nehru Gandhi dynasty, has really put himself at the forefront of the campaign. Uh, Success means that he might get uh, propelled into the prime minister's chair. Uh, Failure may fan misgivings about his capabilities and what his future may be. You're listening to World Weekly with me, Sean Donnan. Let's begin with the crisis in Syria. This week, there have been furious negotiations at the United Nations over an Arab League plan to push for a political transition in Syria. The U.S., France, and the U.K. are keen to see the Security Council adopt a strong resolution, but two other permanent members, China and particularly Russia, are less so. Joining me on the line from Abu Dhabi is Middle East correspondent Michael Peel, who recently returned from Syria. And here with us in the studio is the FT's Middle East editor, Rula Halaf. Let's start with you, Rula. Where are we heading on the diplomatic front? Are we going to see some sort of foreign intervention in the months ahead? I think first, uh, the focus now is on a diplomatic path. Uh, But we have to wait and see whether there can be uh, a consensus at the UN, uh, whether some wording can be agreed by everyone and can bring Russia uh, and China on board. Um, the Russians are obviously following, a, you know, they're taking a very hard line, uh, but there are also some signs that people are not giving up, at least, on the possibility of some agreement. I think that if Russia can be brought into an international consensus, then the prospect of a diplomatic solution is greater. And what does a diplomatic solution look like? If the Assad regime feels completely isolated, and so far it has not felt completely isolated because Russia and to a certain extent also China have been on its side, then it could begin to consider uh, a political transition because its options going forward will be more limited. If we don't get uh, any kind of resolution at the Security Council or if the resolution is uh, has to be watered down so much that it doesn't really take us forward, then the diplomatic path becomes closed. And at that point, the Syrian opposition's plan is to try and strengthen as much as possible the Free Syria Army. 
uh, that takes us this down. This Free Syria uh, army is this, this army of, of, of former Assad regime uh, soldiers or Syrian soldiers who have defected, uh, and their numbers now are somewhere around twenty thousand. Is that right? That's what they. Claim? That's what that's what they claim. We don't really know what their numbers are, and I think there are two types of armed opposition in Syria now. There are civilians who've taken up arms to defend their neighborhoods, and there are these defectors. And one can see an evolution of this crisis whereby the, the, the Free Syria army or the armed elements are strengthened. They're provided with more finance, with more weapons, and the conflict expands and looks more and more like a civil war. Like a clean civil war rather than an insurrection or, or a, a sort of a loose guerrilla war with sort of cleaner sides is well, I just think the level of violence I think we have this this is the pattern that's developed already but I think that the level of violence then becomes and it will take much longer also I mean this becomes a much more prolonged uh, crisis now Michael you're just back uh, from Syria uh, where you ran into members of this free Syrian army in the Damascus suburbs you wrote a very powerful piece uh, for the FT on that what is the feeling in the country right now well for a very large number of people, it's one of real um, fear and uncertainty and, and, and not knowing which way this is going to go. And you see most people don't want a war and they um, talk, whether they are pro-regime or anti-regime, they talk about that very powerfully. Um, but they feel somewhat at the, the mercy of events, of the, the government forces who've been very aggressive throughout and accused of all sorts of human rights abuses and more recently the armed opposition who suddenly sprung up and uh, given this sense of not a national civil war, Libyan style, with rebels taking a whole swathe of the country and the government holding its swathe of the country and then pulling it out on one or two fronts, but a series of um, often vicious localized conflicts where um, not just uh, not just a patchwork across the country, but even within cities. So on that day, for example, you mentioned when we went into the Damascus uh, suburbs, the center of Damascus was calm. Uh, government was in complete control, yet you drive 25 minutes out of town and suddenly, completely by surprise, um, we stumbled across a, a rebel checkpoint manned by these defected soldiers. And that is where this thing is looking very different from Libya. Initially in the Libyan conflict, we had the uprising in Benghazi in the east that very quickly became a, a, a rebel beachhead and uh, uh, and the insurrection sort of grew from there. Uh, here in Syria, we're seeing this grow up in all sort of a thousand different points of light in some ways. Absolutely. The conflict has this incredible fluidity that, uh, as you say, uh, rebels, the opposition or stroke armed rebels don't have territory that they can confidently call their own. So in these very suburbs that they moved into, there have been reports uh, over, over the last few days of the government uh, trying to take those back. Um, uh, it's still not clear exactly what has, has happened. But it shows that the government still has the firepower to take back areas. But the problem with doing that is they're then taking back areas which are hostile to them, uh, causing further casualties, causing further resentment, essentially um, forced to become an army of occupation in their own country, in their own cities, um, with all the kind of stretching of resources and the political pressures that that, that creates. It sounds very much like a game of whack-a-mole. I mean, wherever you hit uh, uh, the insurgents, they pop up somewhere else. 
Yes, absolutely. And, and, uh, and you used the word uh, guerrilla uh, in, in your introduction. And, and that's certainly what my encounter with the, the, the Free Syrian Army uh, felt like. Um, you know, these were guys who were pretty lightly armed, um, had rifles. There was one RPG I saw. I mean, there may have been other weapons hidden away, but uh, they, they felt very footloose. They didn't feel secure. I mean, they, it wasn't the language of the, the Libyan rebels where, you know, they'd have territory and they'd say, yes, we've taken this and now we're going to press on to, to it was uh, something uh, a lot more nervous and with, with uh, talking about how you know the government had attacked the previous day and a real sense of uh, the, the insecurity of their hold on this territory. Now what is life for the ordinary Syrians uh, like on the ground? Uh, what's happening on the economic front there? Well, it's becoming increasingly difficult. Obviously, within the actual conflict areas, um, you know, there are all sorts of terrible reports and fighting every day. And uh, you know, I fear that you know, when 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 uh, outsiders are able to go into those areas, there, there are going to be some pretty grisly fines. But uh, outside of that, in the areas which are not uh, where armed conflict is not taking place, things are getting tougher and tougher for people. Um, there, there, there are two strands of, of problems really. There's um, uh, on the one hand uh, a macroeconomic problem which uh, is most strikingly seen in, in, in the currency which um, has uh, lost uh, about 50% of its, its value uh, against the dollar and uh, um, the central bank has said that it's trying to sort of take control of this. It talked about giving the currency a free float a couple of weeks ago but has now uh, rode back on that so it's not clear what the, the government policy is on that. Um, that obviously is increasing the prices of imports um, that people talk about inflation for all kinds of, of, of goods. There are shortages of petrol in, in some areas, um, which it comes after the economic sanctions on, on Syria's uh, oil industry. Now, uh, Western countries argue that they don't cover refined petrol, so uh, it's not as a result of sanctions, but um, some Syrians, not all of them pro-regime, see the sanctions as, as having caused that. And um, the one thing that the Western sanctions did do was that they caused a lot of international oil companies to leave the country, and that then reduced the, the capacity of the industry to, um, to, to supply local needs. Um, so there are all of these problems mounting up. We really are seeing just pressure growing on all fronts here. So, Rula, are we entering some kind of endgame? I think it's difficult to put um, a time frame on this. Uh, as Michael's been describing, on the ground, it's a situation of stalemate. Uh, areas go in and out of government control, in and out of uh, opposition control. And I think most military experts would say that uh, you can't have a military solution because neither side is strong enough to actually prevail. So. Most people assume that this is going to take a long time, but it could also, you could get cracks within the regime depending on the level of international pressure. And, you know, suddenly you could get a coup, you could get a major defection, which would change uh, the dynamic. Michael, is Bashar al-Assad going to be there in six months? I think it's becoming more and more difficult for him to sustain his position. But what a lot of opposition people tell you is that they think um, that uh, although he will go eventually, the cost uh, could uh, still be very great to come. Something that we're clearly going to be watching very closely. Michael Peel down the line from Abu Dhabi. Rula Khalaf here in the studio in London. Thank you very much.
Let's move to India and the state of Uttar Pradesh, where a lively election campaign is now underway. The scion of the Gandhi Nehru dynasty, Rahul Gandhi, is taking on the incumbent, Kumara Mayawati, queen of the Dalits, as she's known. South Asia bureau chief James Lamont and Delhi correspondent James Fontanella Khan recently visited the city of Mahmudabad and spoke to Serena Tarling about why this vote is important. Uttar Pradesh is India's most populous state. It has about 200 million people. That's about the size of Brazil. It's important because um, it really is the cradle of Indian politics and who controls the state has a very big say in what happens in New Delhi. Uh, Also in this election, which which starts in a, a few days' time, it's a real test for the Congress party as to whether it's been hurt uh, after a very dismal year last year where it suffered from high-profile corruption scandals, parliamentary paralysis, and uh, mismanagement of the economy to see whether it can keep its popularity or whether it's going to be punished by voters. It's also a big test because Rahul Gandhi, the scion of the uh, Nehru Gandhi dynasty, has really put himself at the forefront of the campaign. Uh, Success means that he might get uh, propelled into the prime minister's chair Uh, Failure may fan misgivings about about his capabilities and what his future may be. Did you get any sense from being in Mahmudabad of which way the vote will swing? So, Serena, it's very hard actually to say who will win this election. It looks like it's going to be a three-horse race with BSP led by Mayawati and Samajwadi Party kind of fighting for the top slot. And Congress is likely to be in the third place. But the mood on, on the ground is actually one of a lot of mistrust. People feel that, you know, the election has been battled on, on lines of communal and identity politics, where actually people are tired of this kind of politics. They're looking for more concrete uh, development issues. And therefore, it's, it's going to be very difficult to say who will win. It's, it's probably going to be a coalition government, which kind of reflects a bit the broader politics of of the whole country. So we're very likely to see something similar in in UP. And it could be the Samajwadi Party forming a coalition with the Congress Party, or it could be the BSP forming a coalition with the Hindu right-wing party, the BJP. But in these elections, local issues are going to play a much more important role, as I mentioned earlier. So Yes, I mean, the appeal of a local candidate who's close to the base. The Gandhis are not really based in in Lucknow or in UP. They travel once in a while, but they're seen as like politicians based in Delhi. Whereas Mayawati and also Mulayam Singh of the Samajwadi Party, they're present on the ground. They have a lot of local party workers on the ground to whom voters feel they can have a a relationship with. And it's not the case with the Congress party. But it, it's, it's, it's going to be a tough, a tough election. It's going to be hard to see who's going to win, and it's going to be a long one. What sort of leader is Kumari Mayawati? Well, Kumari Mayawati is uh, the leader of the Bahujan Samaj party um, and has traditionally appealed to lower castes. I mean, many people refer to her as the lower caste champion or the Dalit queen uh, because that is where she draws her support base from. Five years ago, she was successful in this state election and became the chief minister uh, sitting in Lucknow. Now, many people have uh, predicted her demise, saying that she could be a flash in the pan and that she would lose uh, support in this election. Uh, But this is a key test as to whether uh, she has held a support base steady and whether also she has delivered uh, sufficiently uh, to this state in terms of infrastructure development, in terms of delivery to her community, to those lower caste communities. I mean, she has faced a lot of criticism recently about a uh, ambitious building program that she has 
undertaken in Lucknow and in Noida, which is a part of UP close to uh, the capital, Delhi, where she's built a lot of statues to uh, uh, former Dalit leaders and indeed to herself. So people say that she's squandered a lot of money on, on public building programs for statues, but hasn't necessarily delivered at the uh, grassroots. So um, this is a key test as to whether Mayawati and this lower caste movement uh, has momentum and is a permanent feature of UP politics and possibly broader than just UP uh, and in other states. If Rahul loses badly here, what does that mean for the Congress party? Well, this is very high stakes for Rahul Gandhi. He's put himself at the forefront of the Congress's campaign in UP. Um, I think that uh, I'd be very surprised if if Congress won this uh, election outright. But I think even a a marginal improvement on its last uh, last time around's tally will be seen as a great victory. However, I think that if there, if after putting so much effort into this election, there isn't a great swell of support for Congress, uh, then questions will be asked about Rahul. I mean, at the moment, people are looking to see whether there are signs of, of him succeeding Prime Minister Manmohan Singh in the coming years. Now, obviously, that will be much easier with an UP election success at his back. However, if he doesn't get that, there'll be questions about uh, his ability. Again, I mean, he, he, he's some Somebody who you know has campaigned very hard. He's somebody who has a constituency in UP, and uh, he has concentrated on this state and rebuilding the party from this state, uh, as well as supporting the uh, Congress Party youth movement. So this is one of his key areas, and uh, he will be looking for success. That was James Lamont and James Fontanella Khan. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Rula Halaf, Michael Peel in Abu Dhabi, James Lamont, and James Fontanella Khan in Delhi, Serena Tarling for talking to them down the line. World Weekly is produced by Martin Staba. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.